let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. read from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then began Jesus to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and as have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray again. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, as we look at this passage this morning, as we open the Bible, as we share together communion and fellowship in your Son, we pray that you would cause your Spirit to fill us, your sweet Spirit of your son and Lord that this morning we would be able to hear your voice of grace and we would be able to see Lord how beautiful you are how wonderful you are from what we've read and what we hear in Jesus name I pray Amen now by this time in the ministry of Jesus Jesus is experiencing rejection and opposition, as we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew. And he's not only experiencing rejection and opposition from the Pharisees only, but also from the, the people that are influenced by the Pharisees. So we're not to think that it's just the religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus, but also the masses, the people. As he says here, woe unto you, Bethsaida, woe unto you, Capernaum, woe unto you, Chorazin. The cities that he had been dwelling in were not heeding Jesus' message. And the reason was is because they were heeding the influence of the Pharisees. In the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus was performing miracles, of course he performed miracles his, his whole career for the years that he preached. 
um, he gathered large crowds. But just because Christ gathered crowds didn't mean that he gathered to himself true believers, right? And as you look through not only the Gospel of Matthew, but the Gospel of John and all the other writings about Jesus, just because there are crowds that flock to Jesus and that think Jesus is something special, doesn't necessarily mean those are true believers. At one point in the Gospel of John, it says the crowds were so impressed with Jesus that they wanted to make him king. Jesus withdrew himself from the crowds. And it said he didn't commit himself to anybody because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was in man's hearts. So we ought not to be impressed by crowds that throng around Jesus, not in the first century or even today. There are a lot of people today that throng around Jesus. Is that not true? And they profess an admiration of him that doesn't necessarily mean they're true believers. What do they do with his message? Do they just come around and listen to his teaching and think that's nice and listen to and watch his miracles and say that's amazing, but they don't repent, as he says here. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, because you do not repent. You do not listen and believe what I'm telling you. Now, this rejection is nothing new. You'll remember that all the prophets in the Bible experienced rejection from the masses, right? Not merely from the religious leadership, but also from the masses who followed the religious leadership instead of following the prophets. So Jesus is not experiencing anything different. In fact, it's in keeping with the flow of things that he also would be rejected. And Jesus knew that he would be rejected. If all the prophets were rejected, how much more would the Messiah be rejected whom all the prophets prophesied of? Jesus knew what the purpose of his coming was. The purpose of his coming, when he came in the first century to Israel, born of the Virgin Mary, he knew it was to save his people from their sins by giving his life upon the cross. He knew that he wasn't going to be set up as king at that time. Jesus knew he had come to die. Now in verse 16, Christ reflects upon this situation. He reflects upon the people. Verse 16. Jesus says, What shall I liken this generation? Now how are we supposed to understand this word generation? There are two ways we can understand the word generation. One is, a generation is a group of people at the same time. So often in our English language, we would use the word generation like that. We would say, this generation. How would we describe this generation? What is, what, sometimes, when was generation X? When was that? I forgot. <laughs> generation X. Yeah, what group of time group was that? Generation X. You've, you've heard that expression of Generation X before, right? That's describing a time group, right? Or you could talk about the, the generation, the people from the 60s, right? That generation. Or the people from the 40s, that generation. And often when we talk about generation, we mean people from the same time period, right? Even though we're all, we all are Americans, um, we're not all of the same generation in that way of speaking about a generation. But the other way you can talk about a generation is not just the same people of the same time, but people of the same stock, people of the same family, people who have the same father, patriarchs, descendants. And we don't typically talk that way as Americans, but that's the way that the Hebrews would use the word generation is they would talk about, if someone is a gen, if he's saying, how shall I like in this generation? He means, what shall, how shall I like, how shall I describe this kind of people? This pe people from the same stock. Remember, Jesus calls them, the generation that he's talking about, a seed of evildoers. Remember that? And he's not just meaning this generation, this time period. He's meaning, you guys have been a seed of evil evildoers from the very beginning when Moses brought you out of Egypt. You're a generation of vipers. You're a generation that's rebellious. You're a stiff-necked people. We have some English expressions. You are cut from the same cloth. Right? 
Your rebellious fathers, you're just like them. You're the same generation. You're cut from the same cloth. You're a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? <laughs> how shall I describe this kind of people? And it's interesting how Jesus describes them. He says they're like children. Children yelling at children. It's interesting that he uses children because children, when, when we talk about children, often the relationships that children have with one another just kind of cuts through a lot of the nonsense that as adults we, we have, right? Children, you get right down to the bare bones of things. They, they're selfish and they let you know they're selfish, right? <laughs> they throw temper tantrums and... Uh, and when they're very happy, they show it. When they're very sad, they show it. When they're angry, they show it. As adults, we tend to gloss things over. So he cuts right through the nonsense and says, you're kind of like children. This is what this generation is like. And have you ever seen kids do this, as he describes? Children yelling to each other in the marketplace and saying, well, we, we played a happy song and you didn't dance, and we played a sad song and you didn't mourn. Have you ever seen, what do you want to do, do? Have you ever seen kids do that? What do you want to do? I don't know. Nothing. Do you want to do this? No. Okay. Remember when you were a kid, you read Friends and you did that? Well, okay, you don't want to do this, so how about this? No. Oh, do you want to do this? No. Don't feel like it. And the, the reality is, is the other child doesn't want anything with you. <laughs> right? So it doesn't matter what you present. The bottom line is they want to go away. They want to do something else. They don't maybe want to play with you at all. And it's, the problem is not the game you're presenting. It's just the attitude of the, of the friend who doesn't want to play with you. John and Jesus came in totally different manners. You've got to imagine John the Baptist. He was a very strange person in how he appeared. He was in the wilderness. He didn't dwell in any village. Okay, usually you dwell in some kind of a city or town or village. John the Baptist dwelt in the wilderness. He'd be like uh, camping, camping out in uh, Logan Canyon. And he didn't dress the way that everyone else dressed. He didn't eat the way that anyone else ate. He didn't cut his hair. He didn't drink wine like everyone else drank. He didn't... Uh, do the things that other people did. He was totally set apart and he was a prophet, preaching, calling people to repentance, calling people to believe in the gospel, calling people to look forward to the Messiah. And Jesus, on the other hand, if you had seen Jesus, you would have seen him eating with tax collectors and sinners, partying, going to weddings, making lots of wine, eating like everybody else, dressing like everybody else, living in cities towns, villages. And so they came in two totally different manners. And I think also this is helpful in describing perhaps the way that the Old Testament prophets are and the way that the New Testament apostles are. That the Old Testament prophets were kind of like John the Baptist. They were different. They were set apart. They were a little bit radical, calling people's attention to the law. And the New Testament apostles, we tend to be more like Jesus in that we have a message of uh, grace, we have a message of God's love, and we're drawing towards sinners. We, we don't look very different than anyone else, but our message is the same. But the reality is, is that it didn't matter what manner that the messenger of God came, they were rejected. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine bearer, a friend of sinners. We can't please you guys. Because the problem is not our manner. The problem is not, like I said with the kids, the game that's being presented. Do you want to do this? No. The problem is with the friend. The problem is with the Pharisees. The problem is with the people who listen to the Pharisees. The point that Jesus that John the Baptist and Jesus were not rejected because of their lifestyles. We often get that idea. You hear that Christians say that. Why was Jesus rejected? Well, because he didn't fit the the mold that the Pharisees thought he, he, um, he wasn't the king they were looking for. He wasn't the prophet they were looking for. The lifestyle wasn't the issue, Jesus is saying. 
The problem was John the Baptist and Jesus' message. And the Pharisees and the people who followed the Pharisees hated it. What, were John, what was John the Baptist preaching? What was Jesus preaching? Their message is what got them rejected, not their manner. They preached righteousness. They preached righteousness. They both preached what true righteousness is. Now, the people thought the Pharisees were righteous. Did John the Baptist think the Pharisees were righteous? No. The people thought the Pharisees were righteous. Did Jesus think the Pharisees were righteous? No. And both John the Baptist and Jesus called them out on it publicly. Because the Pharisees didn't, when, when the people looked up to them as the righteous ones, they didn't say, oh no, we're not righteous. They said, yeah, absolutely. You're looking at a righteous man, and you should be like me. You should be like us. And if you're not like us, then you're unrighteous, and you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And if God's not going to have you, then we're not going to have you. John the Baptist said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus called them hypocrites. They cleaned the outside, but the inside was full of dead man's bones. And John the Baptist and Jesus both called them out on it and said, look, you're not righteous just because you look good on the outside. You're only righteous if you actually are clean on the inside in the sight of God. You're only righteous if you're like God himself. Perfect. Inside and out. Not just in what you do, but in your motives, in your thoughts, in why you do things, in your looks. And so, they were hated. You remember that they called Jesus demon-possessed, right? But, it, but we, should, we should understand, they called him demon-possessed. Why? Because of his message. Not because of his miracles, not because he didn't meet their messianic expectations, because we see here, also in verse 18, that they said John had a devil as well. He was demon-possessed, and John didn't do any miracles, and John didn't claim to be the Messiah, but they said, John's demon-possessed too. Why? Why would they say that about John the Baptist? Do they have something against Nazarites? Do they have something against prophets? Do they have something against people that preach? No, they had something against the message that John and Jesus brought, because they didn't condone their teaching. And so they said, these guys are demonic, First of all, these guys are saying that the righteous aren't righteous. And second of all, they are hanging out and giving hope to the ones that should have no hope in their mind. So John the Baptist and Jesus' message was the absolute opposite of the Pharisees. The ones that the Pharisees said were righteous, they said weren't righteous. And the one that the Pharisees said weren't righteous, they said they were righteous if they simply believed. That sounds demonic to them. Notice that they accused Jesus in verse 19 of being a friend of sinners. Do you see that? That's not a positive thing that they're projecting upon him, right? They're accusing him of that. He's a friend of sinners, as if that's a bad thing. That's why he's demonic. Only the devil would come along and be a friend of sinners, right? Christian church today gets accused of that. The Christian church, it, it welcomes sinners. It gives sinners hope. That's demonic. Only the devil would say that sinners could have hope. Only the devil would say that those who don't keep the commandments will inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to keep the commandments. And so, what is a reproach in the eyes of one is actually the dearest description of our Lord in the eyes of another, right? And what they slander Jesus with, we actually see as a beautiful thing, is it not? that Jesus is described as a friend of sinners. Are you glad he's a friend of sinners this morning? <laughs> Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come along and condone the Pharisees? He realized that the Pharisees were right. Uh, no one would enter the kingdom of God. And you wouldn't have hope this morning at all. Because not one of us here keeps the law, do we? Not one of us here loves our neighbor as we love ourselves. Not one of us here loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if God was not a friend of sinners, brothers and sisters, God would not be a friend of you. Do you believe that? And sadly, 
many people in the world buy the Pharisees' teaching. The Pharisees' teaching is, is not old, it's not outdated. We find it today. And because they believe that lie about God, that God's not a friend of sinners, in order for him to be your friend, you need to be righteous. Well, everyone starts scrambling now to be righteous. Of course, no one is, but no one wants to admit that they're not, because if they admit they're not, then they have no hope. So what do they do? Here's the standard. They lower it. And they say, oh, I am righteous. I am a good person. I'm not a sinner. God knows I'm not a sinner. God knows my heart, right? God knows my heart. And he knows I'm a good person. That's why I'm, I'm friends with God. Their friendship with God is based upon their own self-righteousness and perception that they're righteous. Of course, they've lowered the standard. And friends, the answer is not to lower the standard to be God's friend. What kind of a God do you believe in? And do you see how that perverts our knowledge of God? And it makes us see God as not gracious and not righteous. One, he's not gracious because he doesn't, he doesn't welcome and invite sinners. And two, he's not righteous because God himself accepts a standard less than what true righteousness is. However, if we start preaching the truth about righteousness, we're going to make a lot of self-righteous people angry just like Jesus and John the Baptist did. Children. Jesus says, they may say that we have a devil. They may say that our message is false. We, of course, say their message is false and they have a devil. Who's right? Because we're both accusing each other of the same thing. Jesus says, the one who is wise or the wisdom that each one is purporting is justified by her children. Children meaning those who are brought up by you. Those who are brought up by you prove the wisdom of your tutelage. This is, a, this is just a broad principle that can be applied to anything. A, a child here meaning Whoever is brought up by you, what they turn out as will prove the wisdom of your, of your upbringing them, of how you brought them up. And so Jesus here, is certain, certainly this applies in the long term as well, but in the short term, um, you could have seen it then, you can see it now, that what are, the, what are the people like whom the Pharisees bring up? What are the people like whom John the Baptist and Jesus brought up? Which wisdom justifies is justified by their children. And I'd like you to just consider that the disciples of the Pharisees, and not just in the first century, but today, anyone who is brought up by Pharisees are dishonest. You find someone who is raised by a Pharisee, and you find someone who doesn't take either the scriptures or the law honestly. They don't look at the scriptures honestly. They don't consider the law as it is. And you see this by how children of the Pharisees gloss over the scriptures, lower the standards of the law, make excuses, and they never will honestly look at what the law and the prophets have to say. They'll never honestly look at their own lives That's all God wants you to do, is be honest. Do you sin? If you say, yes, I sin, be honest. Why do you sin? Because you don't want to obey, you're guilty. Just be honest. But you'll find that the children of the Pharisees will say, well, I sin, yes, but you know, it's not because I'm not a good person, I'm really trying my best, and God knows my heart, and... You know, it's just the circumstances. And they aren't honest with their own sin. True? The disciples of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' wisdom teaches men to be dishonest with the scriptures, dishonest with the law, dishonest about their own sin. The fruit of this, of course also is that the children of the Pharisees live in constant fear.
fear of ever failing. If they fail, they make excuses because if they didn't make an excuse, they'd have despair. What about the children of the, the children of Jesus and John the Baptist? What about the children of of the gospel? John the Baptist says, "Come into the water, confess you're a sinner. Don't make excuses." Jesus says, "Come into the light, be exposed as a sinner." The children of the truth, the children of Jesus. Let me say this, are honest about the scriptures. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? The Bible says you must love God with all of your heart. I don't. They're honest about their sin. I don't love God with all of my heart because I'm not a good person. I don't have an excuse. I can't say that it was someone else's fault or the devil's fault or my circumstances' fault. When I sin, it's my sin, and I'm guilty, and I don't deserve eternal life. True? So the children of Jesus are honest. And yet at the same time, the children of Jesus have peace. Right? Which is kind of an interesting thing. Because we admit that we're guilty, and we admit that we're sinners, and we admit that we don't deserve eternal life, and yet you find Christians at peace with God. And why? Because they are not basing their peace with God upon their own goodness or worthiness, but upon the knowledge of God and amazing grace. They're basing their peace with God upon Jesus Christ and what he did for them. And so they have peace, they have joy in their honesty. Wisdom is justified by her children. Let me just ask you, in light of these two things, what do you think is the proper way to bring somebody up? The way of the Pharisees, lowering the standards of the law and justifying your sin? Or the way of Jesus, raising the standard of the law, not justifying your sin, and looking to God's amazing grace in Christ? You be the judge. Jesus says, wisdom is justified by our children, and you will be able to see her children now and forever. You can look at the world today. You can ask the same questions. Now in verse 20 to 24, we learn that to reject Jesus and to follow the Pharisees, because to, to reject Jesus is to follow the Pharisees, and to follow Jesus is to reject the Pharisees. To reject Jesus and not to repent and change your mind and believe in the gospel is the worst thing a person can do. If you reject the gospel after hearing it, if, if a prophet comes along to you or an apostle comes along to you or Jesus himself comes along to you and says, guess what? This is what the law requires. And you don't have an excuse for your sin. But even though you're guilty, God loves you and the Messiah has come to deal with your sins. On the cross, he died for them. He rose from the dead. Now you just believe that you're a sinner and the truth about the law and you put your trust in the amazing grace of God. If you hear that message and reject it, brothers and sisters, Jesus says it's going to be worse for you on Judgment Day than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know Sodom and Gomorrah? The guys that got fire and brimstone rained down upon them? You don't see that too often, right? It's going to be worse for you than them on the Judgment Day. Because you've rejected the light. You've rejected the truth. You've rejected the Son of God. Charles Erdman says on this passage, Who must it be who makes such claims for himself? If you reject me, then you're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Only Christ himself, only the Son of God himself could say this. And you know what's really sad about this is that these are not hypothetical things that many, many people and perhaps even people that have come to All Saints Church will on Judgment Day have it worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because they heard the gospel message and rejected it. For what? The Pharisees' message? That gives no hope and causes you to be 
dishonest, dwelling in the darkness, not believing in the truth. So let me urge you to consider what you do with Jesus. Who are you listening to? Who are you believing? Who are you trusting? The greater the privilege you have of the gospel, then the worse, the greater your accountability and the worse it will be if you reject it. Now this rejection, not only of Christ, but of all the apostles, all the prophets, Look at verse 25 with me, brothers and sisters. At that time, Jesus answered and said, so in light of this rejection now, in light of the fact that people reject the gospel of Christ, Jesus has a spontaneous prayer of praise to the Father. You see, he's discerning the situation. You've got to realize that the fact that men reject the gospel doesn't mean that God's not in control. But God is in control. And look what Jesus says about this rejection. He says, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, neither knows any man the Father but the Son and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now he says, you have hidden these things. What are these things that he's talking about? You've hidden these things. These things, if we look at the context, must be the things that Jesus is preaching. The gospel message. The gospel of the kingdom. The truth about righteousness. The things of God. These are the things of God. You ever wonder what's God interested in? What's the things of God all about? It's not necessarily miracles. It's the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of Christ. It's righteousness. This is the message of Jesus and all the prophets. The message of righteousness and the kingdom. And God has hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Now, I want to suggest this isn't just an arbitrary statement about God's election. That he just so happens to, uh, for no other reason, choose to hide these things from the wise and the prudent and reveal it unto babes. It's just kind of arbitrary. There's no reason. God just rolled a dice and said, Ooh, look, the babes are going to find this out, not the wise and the prudent. God has designed the gospel, so that it is hidden from human wisdom. God has laid a stumbling block, it says in the Old Testament scriptures, through Christ that many will stumble at. And the very thing that men stumble at will be their salvation. The very thing that men's salvation will be, many will stumble at. And God has designed it this way. Now Jesus is not saying, I've hidden this from smart people. And, I've revealed, and God has revealed it to stupid people or unintelligent people. I've seen many unintelligent people who don't believe the gospel and who believe the Pharisees. Have you? And I've seen many smart people who have believed the gospel and not believe the Pharisees. Have you? He's not saying, if you're smart, if you were born smart, that's tough for you. <laughs> and if you were born unintelligent, good, good for you. Blessed are you. <laughs> We can see he's not speaking literally about smart people or unintelligent people because he says you revealed it unto babes. Now this doesn't literally mean babes or children. I've seen young people who don't believe the gospel. Right? I've seen old people who But when he says babes, he's talking about a characteristic that is found in people. Now turn to Matthew 18, real briefly. Just at the very beginning of Matthew 18. And Jesus says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say unto you, Unless you are converted, that means unless you change, and become as little children, 
you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless, unless you become like a little child, you're not getting in. Whoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You're not even getting in if you don't humble yourself as a little child, but if you get in, you, you happen to be the greatest. That would be everybody then that's in. A child is someone who Jesus describes here as humble, someone who doesn't know it all, someone who listens, someone who learns from God. Someone who is wise and prudent is not talking about someone who's merely intelligent, but someone who thinks that they're wise and they already know the answers. I don't need to listen to God. I don't need to listen to the apostles. I already They don't have a humility to listen and to consider that perhaps God's thoughts are higher than their thoughts. The scripture says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So if you took God out of the picture and you thought up what the gospel was all about, or you thought up what God was all about, you thought up what the things of God were really all about, you would not come up with what God thinks. The best you could do would fall short of what God thinks. And then God comes along and says, you are incorrect. This is what the truth is. And at that point, a person can either say, no God, I'm already wise. I know and understand what life is all about. You're wrong. Let me counsel you, God. Let me tell you how it works. You're not, you're not serious that we have to be perfect. Of course, that's crazy, God. And no one would be in, God. So obviously you don't demand perfection, God. You just mean we just gotta prove that there's some good in us, right? That makes perfect sense. God, you're wrong. Or maybe it's not you, maybe it's just people who write for you, God. I know what it's all about, God. It's just about doing your best, God. The wise and the prudent are those who think they know. They've already figured it out. How many of you know this? I know this for my, myself. Before I even understood what the Bible taught, I already thought I knew what the Bible taught. Right? I figured I already knew everything about religion before I even understood the Bible. I would approach the Bible reading it figuring that I already knew what it had to say. You ever read the Bible like that? I know what God's all about. I know what religion's all about. I know how it works. Oh yeah, the Bible. I'll give it a read. But as you read it, you interpret it through what you think it should say. The Apostle Paul comments on this very thing in 1 Corinthians. He says, If any man to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. You really need to start with humility and think, you know what? Perhaps I don't know everything. Perhaps God has something to say. And if he said something that doesn't seem to sit well with me, maybe I should learn. Maybe I should ask about this. Maybe I should consider and reason with God. You have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. 1 Corinthians also says, Jesus is our wisdom. No one can boast. No one can boast and say, yeah, I locked myself in a closet one day and I thought up what the gospel was and I came out on the other end and I realized what God was all about. I did it. You can't boast in your own knowledge because God is the one who must reveal this to you and you take the position of a humble listener. God alone gets the glory because he is our wisdom and not we ourselves. In verse 27 to 30, Jesus gives us one of the most beautiful disclosures of himself that can be found in the entire Bible. Now, much of the time we see Jesus doing miracles and we see Jesus doing deeds, but rarely do we see him disclose himself like this. This sounds a lot like John's gospel. And he says, all things are delivered to me of my Father, and no one knows the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. John really grasped onto this disclosure and dwelt upon it in his gospel. But we find it here as well. There's no disharmony between the gospels. 
Jesus says, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. All things being all the words of God, all the deeds of God, all the judgment of God, all the authority of God the Father is given to the Son. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I don't do anything of myself. Everything that the Father says, I say. Everything that the Father does, I do. All the judgment that the Father has, he's given unto me. All the authority that the Father has, he's given unto me. Everything is mine, the Father has. There's not anything that the Son has that is not from the Father. And it's because of this that when you see the Son, you see the Father. Can you imagine if only part of Jesus was the Father? That only some of Jesus' words were the words of the Father and some of Jesus' deeds were the deeds of the Father? How would you be able to distinguish between those things? When you see Jesus, do you really see the Father or do you just see Jesus? And you don't really know the Father. It could only be that when we see Christ, we see God because in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Godness, divinity, right? So Jesus is here saying, when you see me, you see the Father because everything that you that is about the Father is in me. You want to know what God is like? You look to me. Everything is here. Isn't that amazing? You don't need to look outside of Jesus Christ to see God. I wonder how many Christians really believe that. Because many Christians believe in Jesus. And they say, yeah, he died for my sins and all, but I still got to get to know God. Thank you, Jesus. But I'm going to try to figure out who God is. It's not enough that I just believe in Christ and study Christ and look at Christ and see Jesus. There's got to be more than him. But Jesus is saying there isn't. To see the Son is to see the Father. We know this well. However, Jesus says a very interesting thing here also. It is not only that to see the Son, you see the Father, but there's a little bit of a difficulty here because it says here, nobody knows the Son but the Father. How many people know the Son but the, according to this verse? Nobody but the Father. Jesus is saying this in light of the rejection he's experiencing. He says, I've come as a light into the world, and men didn't recognize the light. I am God in the flesh, and men don't recognize the Son. They don't know the Son. Only the Father knows the Son. The Father who says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now that kind of leaves us a bit helpless, doesn't it? Because if I'm going to know God, I need to know the Son, but I don't know the Son. And what we learn here, brothers and sisters, is that in order to see the Son so that you might know God, the Father needs to reveal the Son to you. You need to hear the Father say, listen to Him. This is my beloved son. You listen to him if you want to know me. In verse 25, Jesus said, You have revealed them unto babes. Jesus says in John chapter 6 that everyone who is taught of God comes to me and believes. And so we begin as Jesus is saying here, with humility, with learning, and by the Spirit of God, we deal honestly with the Scriptures, we deal honestly with the Law, we deal honestly with our sin. God is teaching us about the Son as we are honest with what He has to say, as we humbly submit to what He has to say. And the Father leads us to the Son, and when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, it is because the Father has taught them and revealed unto them the Son. And when you see the Son, you see the Father. Verse 28, Jesus calls everyone to himself. You want to know the Father? Come to me. Come unto me. All. Now notice he doesn't say me all righteous. 
Come unto me, all you who are at rest. Come unto me, all you who are not thirsty. All you who have already got it all figured out. He calls those who need. He calls the unrighteous. He calls those who don't have rest. Sometimes we think, well, if I don't have rest, then I don't qualify. If I don't have peace, I don't qualify. If I don't have faith, I don't qualify. If I don't have righteousness, I don't qualify. Jesus is saying, you come to me because you don't have that stuff. Right? You come to me and you find all that you need. Come to me, all you who are unrighteous. Come to me, all you who need rest. Who is that? That's everyone. Everyone. That's you. That's me. We need to come to Him. Rest is what we need, is it not? Rest is the cessation of labor. We've been laboring. We've been working. For what? Peace. We've been laboring to know God, to be right with God. We learn in the very beginning of the Bible that because man sinned, God cursed this world with hard labor. When Noah was born, his father, predicting the Messiah, named him Noah, which means rest. And he says, he will comfort us and give us rest from all of our hard labor that God has given us because of the cursed world, because of our sin. Jesus gives us rest, the rest that we all long for in our hearts, the rest that we all groan for, that peace with God, that right relationship with God, from having to work for all that and for everything that we need. Rest is what you want. Rest is what you need. And in Christ alone will you get it. Because in Christ alone, brothers and sisters, you come to know God as a God of love and grace, as a God of mercy. And you find in God forgiveness. and then you can have rest. Knowing you don't need to work for these things anymore, right? You don't need to work for forgiveness anymore. This is a beautiful declaration that most people in the world need to hear. You don't need to labor to be right with God or to have joy or to have peace. You get it in Christ and in Christ alone because Jesus Christ, by coming into the world, came to bring us that rest by dying on the cross for our sins and taking away the curse by becoming a curse in our behalf. And by Him dying on the cross for us, sinners who don't deserve that, what we do deserve is a curse, but He took the curse away. He reveals the heart of God. How do we come to Jesus? Everyone needs to know. You don't come to Him physically, obviously. You don't need to build a tower to heaven and climb up and try to get to Jesus to get rest. But Jesus has come here and died for us and we come to him through faith. It's that easy. If you've never come to Christ before, you can come to him right now. And you come to him by simply believing in him. Believing the truth. It's so simple. Jesus said, Come unto me. If anyone's thirsty, come unto me and drink. He puts it another way. If you believe in me, you will never hunger or thirst again. Now in verse 29 and 30, sometimes we can get a little confused about this because he says, take my yoke and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We think, oh my goodness, he's calling me to put a yoke on my neck. Right? I thought this was about rest. And now you're saying, i got to put a yoke on my neck? A yoke is something you put over the oxen, right? Although there's human yokes that you can put on yourself. Have you ever seen maybe people carry milk on either side of them with a, uh, an apparatus called a yoke? Helps them carry it. So what is this? He's saying, come unto me and rest. Take on my yoke. I thought, he, I thought it wasn't to come and work. And people misunderstand this call to Jesus. And many people think that Jesus is calling them to work. And their whole religion is based upon that, right? I come to Jesus, he gives me a yoke, and I must push on and work for him. However, Jesus is actually echoing a very familiar...
familiar Jewish concept. And you find it actually in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was written in that time period between Malachi and Matthew. And there's about 400 years of Jewish history. And in that time, the writings in the Apocrypha talk about wisdom calling you to come unto it and to take upon you wisdom's yoke. So wisdom, like in the book of Proverbs, is saying, come to me and take my yoke and you will have rest. And in, these, in this concept that the Jewish people would have had when Jesus said, come to me and take upon yourself my yoke and you'll find rest, they would have understood Jesus not calling them to come and work, but calling them to come and learn. In the book of Sirach 51:26, this is in Pakpa. Put your neck under the yoke and let your soul receive instruction. The yoke of wisdom is instruction. Come and learn. Come and sit at my feet. Come and listen to what I have to say. Come and be instructed by me. And you will find rest for your souls. And so, brothers and sisters, this yoke that Jesus is talking about is not the law or commandments. If it was, it wouldn't be a very easy yoke, would it? If the Sermon on the Mount was what Jesus was calling us to come put ourselves under, how many of you do you think find rest for your souls? None. Because every day you'd wake up in the morning thinking, have I loved my enemies? Have I lust? Have I kept my heart free from all anger? Have I prayed today? Have I worried today? If I have, then I'm not obedient to Jesus. Oh, I'm not walking with his yoke. And it would become a burden. Jesus is saying, come to me as opposed to the Pharisees and learn from me. Learn of me does not merely mean learn from my example. He's not saying, come and copy me. He's saying, come and let me teach you. Come and learn of me instead of the Pharisees and you will find rest for your souls. The Pharisees would heap the laws on you. They would heap burdens upon you, the things that you need to do. Come to me and I will show you the way of rest. By being honest about your sin, I will show you the way of rest. By being honest about the scriptures, by being honest about the law, I will show you the way of rest because I will show you the things of God. I will show you what God is truly like you will learn from me and find rest isn't that beautiful what Jesus says and he also adds here I'm meek and lowly you see in his day humility was not much of a virtue among the ancients but Jesus shows us that it's a virtue I'm meek and lowly in fact by Jesus being meek and lowly he suits us as our teacher not only because he will deal gently with us but more than that, because it is the one who seeks the glory of God alone that truly speaks the truth about God. Turn to Matthew, or, excuse me, John chapter six, or uh, excuse me, John chapter seven. Just very briefly, want to point out a very important passage in the Gospel of John. John seven verse eighteen. Jesus is meek and lowly, and this suits him to be our teacher. Because the one who seeks the glory of God alone is the one who speaks the truth about God. Verse 16, John 7, 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not my own, but him that sent me. If any man wants to do his will, God's will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If you truly want to do God's will, you're going to know whether what I'm saying to you is the truth of God or not. Here's why. He that speaks of himself, so he says, if you want to do God's will, you're going to know that what I say is not me speaking of myself, but it's God. Because he that speaks of himself, he's just pulling it out of his, his own thoughts, seeks his own glory. But he that seeks 
God's glory, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. His little test. Did Jesus seek his own glory or the glory of God? Did the Pharisees seek their own glory or the glory of God? And one thing you find in the first century or today, but with modern Pharisees as well, brothers and sisters, their teaching betrays itself to be from their self because they seek their own glory. Jesus saying, come to me and learn. Take my instruction upon you. I'm going to show you the way of rest. I'm going to show you God. Because I'm meek and lowly. I'm not in this for myself. I'm in this for the glory of God. He says this in contrast with the Pharisees. He is well suited to be your teacher. You can trust him. Brothers and sisters, in closing, no one has ever made a claim like this in history. There's many religious men that will say, come and learn from me, but I'm going to point you the way how to be at rest. And they point you a way that is dishonest with the scriptures, the law, and their sin. They point you down the way of self-righteousness. Jesus said, come to me and learn of me and I will give you rest for your souls. He's not even merely just saying, come to me and I'll point you down a way. He's saying, come to me and find in me rest for your souls. Learn of me and find out that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. No one has ever made this claim before. On any other lips, this would be hollow and disappointing. But brothers and sisters, listen to the numberless millions who can attest that by coming to Jesus Christ and learning of Him and being honest about their sin, they have found rest for their souls. If only people didn't harden their hearts and think they were so wise and didn't listen to the Pharisees and were able to look at their children and see that their tutelage was not wise or look at how they were seeking their own glory and say, this isn't right. They would learn, they would turn, they would come to Christ, believe and be saved. So, will you believe today? If you've not come unto Christ, if you've not been honest about your sin, if you've not seen that you fall short of the standard of God's law and you're still making excuses, then I ask you today to believe on Jesus Christ, to admit you're a sinner, and to come to Him and put your faith in His grace. Trusting that He died for you and that is all that you need. That God is forgiving. That you don't enter the kingdom of God based upon your own righteousness, but based only upon the righteousness that comes through faith in Him. If you don't believe in this, my friends, you've heard it, it will be worse for you on Judgment Day than for Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have come unto Him, then I want you to be encouraged that Judgment Day will be a glorious thing for you, my friends. That when you stand before God on Judgment Day, it will not be like Sodom and Gomorrah for you at all. But you'll be welcomed into the kingdom of God with exceedingly great joy. And it will not be because you are worthy or somehow good enough to be there, but it's because you are trusting in the grace and the truth of God. So for you who believe, understand that by believing, you need nothing more. And that sometimes we get distracted as Christians, don't we? And we think that, yeah, I believe, but I can't find my rest yet until I get everything else settled in my life as well. But we have everything that we need, brothers and sisters, in Jesus. And you can be at total rest today. In fact, you are at total rest if you believe in Him. Sometimes we just don't realize that. As Christians, let us also invite other people to come into that rest and tell them, come and see for yourself that the friend of sinners is everything that you need. Let's pray. Father, I also thank you this morning that you the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. And Lord, I thank you for every person here 
who has come to know you through Jesus Christ, who has been honest about their sin and has seen the truth about your love and your grace through Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's not, a, who's not saved from their sins and who's on a course for destruction, I pray, Lord, that they would today be honest and hear the good news of the gospel. That there's hope for them even when they admit that they fail. Lord, thank you for your word and for this time. And we pray that you would be glorified in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.